Thanks for listening to this podcast produced by Diddy TV. Visit DiddyTV.com for more exclusive on-demand content or download the official Diddy TV app from your app store today. Welcome to Insights, everyone. Today, Amy Wright sits down with Jed Hilly, Executive Director of the Americana Music Association, which, since 1999, has helped American Roots music assume an elevated place in the world. Hilly's career has included work for Orbison Records, Sony Music Entertainment, and various other notable organizations. Following the 9-11 disaster in 2001, Jed relocated his family from New York to Nashville, and in the spring of 2007, he accepted a position as Executive Director at the Americana Music Association, where he continues today. We're excited for you to learn more about his story and the work he's doing that positively affects so many lives in the music industry. So let's get to it. From Diddy TV, here's Jed Hilly with Amy Wright on Insights. Where did you grow up? I grew up in New York and in Vermont. Um, my family had a farm in Vermont. Um, I think there's a Dillon line which says it's, uh, it's not a house, it's, it's a home. And uh, that home for me was Vermont, but uh, I went to school in New York, uh, in the suburbs of New York City, and uh, lived up in Vermont for some of, some of my first 18 years, but then uh, traveled a lot, went, traveled all around, I don't know, 34 different countries between the ages of 18 and 26. I kind of had a bug that I that I just had to follow. And uh, that was a good bug, a travel bug. Um, well, were you, playing really music, were you playing music as a kid or? No, I, 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 was, I was not, but by, you know, I spent, I didn't go to straight to college. I went to Europe and I, and I grew an appreciation for art, uh, particularly in Italy. I was staying in a pensione on, uh, in Rome and one of the people who were lodging a few doors down from me was a Fulbright scholar studying the Baroque period of art. And we became friends about, you know, two days into my stay. And I just hung out for three weeks with this guy because he could take me behind the altar of the church you've never heard of because he was a Fulbright scholar. And he exposed me to Bernini and Borromini and just all that is incredible that is the artwork not only you know that lives in you know the the incredible artwork that's in the vatican and all the great museums of of rome but what's on the street and and i just you know grew a fascination for for all art forms um really during that period i mean i was a you know i i went through my early you know, growing up in Vermont, we would go to bluegrass festivals and fiddle contests all the time. And I merged my way through my Grateful Dead era and Joni Mitchell and Bonnie Raitt and Neil Young. That was sort of, those were my foundational music roots. And then I just developed this passion for, for art and, and artists in, gen, in, in the broader scope. Um, which strangely enough, many years later, I like to liken Americana musicians as artists, and I don't even like to call them Americana artists, but I do believe that just as there is commercial art, 
that you see in magazines and online advertising, like that's commercial art and that has a value and that's a good thing. But then there's fine art. And I, uh, I, uh, I consider Americana to be a fine art. And um, it's, it's not consumed by um, commercial necessity. It's consumed by the intent of the artist. Um, and it's the making of a great song. I mean, I love that, that you know, not, not to go on a tangent, but I love that Dylan and T-Bone just re-recorded Blown in the Wind and they made one copy and they sold it for what, $1.8 million or <laughs> $1.6 million. Like that's the essence. And uh, I was excited to see that announcement, if only to put forth the notion that music can be an art form and it's not, which can be for the masses. It's just, how do we translate that? But well, so that was my upbringing. Well, one of the things you said sort of reminded me of, uh, in, you went on to describe Americana music as an art form, but when you talked about uh, Italy and the art there, if you've ever been to the Sistine Chapel and you go to the Vatican, uh, what struck me was you went through all these other smaller chapels that were equally as extraordinary yeah. um, before and after the Sistine Chapel um, with all these other artists that were not Michelangelo. Yeah. They were the um, other Raphael. amazing artists. <laughs> right. And so chapel. you can sort of like an Americana a little bit like that. So you've got the bigger artists. So you've got the Sistine Chapel, but um, you've got all of that those artists that kind of lead up to to that and, and beyond. And it's just, you know, amazing music that's coming out these days. You know, we track it obviously at Diddy uh, TV, but um, just how many young people are playing such a broad scope of music is incredible. Oh, I love that, Amy. And I, I think you're absolutely right. Mary Gaucher once was, she said, Jed, what you're doing with Americana um, is working to build careers, not write one hit song. And, and, and that's, I think, very true of our community, if you will, is, you know, we are fostering career growth. I mean, you know, how many of our artists, you know, hit 35 and 40 and, you know, boom, Chris Stapleton, boom, Brandy Carlisle. You know, it, it, it's not uncommon in our world. Mary, of course, being, in, in my opinion, sort of the quintessential artist who sold her restaurants in Love Boston her. after she was 40 years old, went to Nashville and, you know, wrote Mercy Now and is, you know, I think one of the greatest songwriters of our time. Um, and she's out there day in and day out. And she's, you know, selling, you know, 200, 300, 400, seat rooms and standing at her table and selling her her cds and making a good little business for herself and what an extraordinary feat for uh for a woman to start in the music business at the age of 40. um and then you know uh i do like to tell younger artists when they're like you know what do i do and it's like well it's it's uh it's a long haul and you need to be true to your passion. If you want to get in to the songwriting world and have a country music artist make a hit, you know, that would be the commercial art form that lives over there. But if you want to be true to your art and you want to see 
your passion and your creation through, you got to be prepared to get in a van and drive from town to town. And, you know, when it, when it's a hit, it's a hit. And, uh, but in the meantime, you can build a beautiful career out of it. When did you get into the, the music business? I know you worked for Sony and were you doing something musically before you got the job at Sony or how did that happen? Yeah, I was in a band and playing in, uh, playing in a band and I was working at Tortilla Flats on West 12th and Washington Street in New York City, uh, which was a fantastic dive that just, just, died, just closed just a couple of years ago. Um, but it was a blast. I, I had a lot of good friends there. And uh, our mariachi band didn't show up one New Year's Eve around 1986. I'm dating myself. And uh, my buddy Steve called me and said, what are we going to do? The mariachi band. Like, I'm thinking we start our own band. <laughs> so the employees of Tortilla Flats got together. Uh, we didn't have a drummer. Um, we used a drum machine, but uh, four of us got together who worked in the restaurant. And we, like two days before New Year's Eve, and we wrote six songs, and we were all working New Year's Eve. So right at like midnight, we all stopped working. Whoever wanted a drink couldn't get it because we got together in the corner and we played six songs. Well, people loved it. And before two o'clock in the morning came, as we were all celebrating the new year, um, we were offered another gig two weeks later. And that was crazy. And then uh, it was a guy named Angel Quinones who played in a band called Conk. That was a smoking band in New York in the 80s. And uh, another dude named George Fontaine Jr., whose father, I think, uh, may have toured the world with Art Blakely. It was like sophisticated jazz dude who was like, that was really good. You guys need a drummer. So we added Angel on Congos and like the most incredible percussion set section we could have had. And I was the bass player, which I never played bass before. So it was like ridiculous because I was playing with two of the greatest percussionists in New York City at the time. And that ran its course. Uh, we had a great time. Um, but as most bands uh, experience, we combusted. Spontaneously or? <laughs> it was more or less over time. You know, there was a lot of love and a lot of passion going around it at that time. And uh, maybe a little too much passion and too much love, but... Uh, um, I still love all my old bandmates and part of my role, I just took on the role as being the manager of the band. So I was dealing with a lot of the business and out of that, one of my regular customers uh, was a great dude named Roger Christian who worked for Sony Music. And when he found out I quit the band and I was somewhat sullen, he was like, well, you got a job in the, on the other side of the music business if you want it. Like, you're good at what you do. So I took that job at Sony and uh, um, it was uh, it was the bottom. I was looking at the bottom rung of the ladder when I uh, took that job. But I was a little older than college students who were like that. Was, like it was an intern type of a job at, at Sony. And um, but I decided it was time for me to be humble and. Um, and it was it was graduate school in the music business for the next 10 years. So what kind of roles did you have while you were there? I know it's kind of ran the gamut. We'll get to the end of it because I think it's pretty interesting where you kind of landed at Sony. But um, what what were some of the roles you had? It was funny. I, I 
uh, Pearl Jam's coming to Nashville on September 16th, and and I was in touch with a friend of mine who works with, with them, and and um, we were talking about my first job at Sony. One of the things I had to do was I looked after the inventories of Tower Records. So I would go into Tower Records and make sure they had enough Pearl Jam CDs. At the time, it was their, their, I arrived there just as Pearl Jam's first album was coming out. And they were gonna, I was responsible for making sure they were every, they were coming to do an in-store performance, acoustic performance, it's like 1991, maybe 1992, I can't remember, but it was 30 years ago. And Eddie and the Motley Crew, not Motley Crew, Eddie and Pearl Jam, who were a Motley Crew, <laughs> I like drove in a van from one Tower Records to another Tower Records, and they'd do like a 20 minute acoustic set. Um, and I, it was, you know, it was a meet and greet. So I would then say, if you want to, you know, I've got Sharpies, please form a line. There's like a hundred people there in a record store. That was one of my first, first responsibilities, uh, at Sony music, which was, which was pretty crazy when you look back on it. Um, I went through that. Um, I got promoted, uh, pretty quickly, um, and ended up in the national office on 52nd street. And then, uh, where I worked at Sony Music Distribution. I was responsible for retail marketing. I then moved over to international marketing um, where I looked after lo global logistics and how do we get a Bruce Springsteen album to uh, Australia and Europe and the six major manufacturing plants around the world without anybody stealing it. Those were the days of piracy. Like I would literally send my staff with a master to Brazil to have it like to hand deliver it to the Sony representative at the manufacturing site in, in Sao Paulo and in Australia in the, in uh, you know, in Asia, in Holland, in Austria, wherever our manufacturing sites. And then I moved into a little more creative where I was Creed's product manager, international product manager for Sony. Um, for a couple of years, which was a wild ride. I bet that was fun. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was, uh, it, you know, at the time, 97, 98, 99, uh, they were about the biggest band in the world, to be honest. Um, they, we sold 32 million albums. They sold 32 million albums. I mean, it, was, it, was a, it was a great run. And that period was the advent of Napster. And I was tasked to, I left my position to a corporate position where I was tasked with working with six other people to figure out, it, we were called the Napster response team. It was like, what do we do? So we, were, we digitized all of the assets for Sony. My specific job was to figure out how, uh, because of my international experience, how do we get the artwork, the publicity photos, all the assets transmitted digitally. This was about 2000, 99, 2000. I mean, was, was Sony surprised by Napster or did they see that coming on some level? They didn't see it coming. Um, I don't know. There's certain things when I left 20 years ago, I had to sign a document that said I wouldn't say anything about it. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, no, there there were people inside. I mean, I remember, I remember 
holding up a box of cigarettes and in a in a senior executive meeting and said have any of you been in the subway lately and um they all had drivers they didn't go in the subway and i said well guys if it doesn't fit in this box teenagers don't care anymore you're all fighting about encrypting a cd so that you can't make a recording of it they don't care like you got to figure out how to embrace this i mean i didn't know but i knew enough to know that when i was a teenager and in my early 20s i used to buy maxell tapes and i would make a mixtape and i would give it to a friend who would give me one that they made and i'd hear five songs i liked and i went to the record store and bought them out so i knew something was wrong in the philosophy at a pretty senior level i mean uh, that one meeting i thought i was going to get fired when i made that statement and uh but they didn't fire me and they let me do what i was tasked to do and um it it was uh, it was very interesting the the initiative actually created a, a fantastic website which looks an awful lot like spotify today um and it was uh, it was the sony version of of napster that came out of that um but they just missed the boat they were they were just a little behind the eight ball and i think the industry made you know they were suing 16 year olds for ripping music off of Napster which was just ridiculous um that that was not the way to win over hearts you know it's it seems like that was sort of that right in that transition and it happened very fast where um artists were making a lot of money big artists were making a lot of money off of record sales and really they didn't have to charge a lot when they toured for tickets because they made so much money off of their record sales and then it just whoosh, flipped Yeah. to where they couldn't make the same money off record sales and so they had to charge more for uh tickets. I mean, it's got to go one way or the other. <laughs> you know, people have to make a living, so Well, and they, I mean, yeah, money was, you know, flowing like like wine. I mean, once CDs took took hold in in 92, 93, you know, I uh you know, I remember my my wife at the time in in the early mid 90s got me a CD player and I was like eh, like I didn't want it. Well, you know, then you had to go and I'm sure I'm not the only one who kind of went through that. I mean, I kept my turntable. I still have my turntable. But um you had to go like resupply your whole collection. So the labels are making money off the you know, the albums off the CD, you know, but now you if you want your Sly and the Family Stone fresh album, you got to go buy it on CD. Cause I hadn't thought about that. That's that's so true. Yeah, so it's like we, they started all so they had so much money. You know, those were the days of the $900,000 MTV video budget. What? Like <laughs> I can do it on this for nothing. <laughs> right. I mean seriously, unbelievable, <laughs> right? I remember $900,000 Creed budget. That's 98. That's a lot of money. That is nuts. Well, yeah. and in all of this, right in the middle of it all, I guess is when the AMA started, right? Around 99. You weren't working there then. No. But how did the AMA get started? So, it was a reaction, interestingly enough, to the commercial country marketplace saying, you know, determining that they were no longer interested in 
and Johnny Cash. And of course, you probably recall the great billboard uh, uh, ad with that Rick Rubin and Johnny took out after they won Grammys for the best country album. And, you know, Johnny's <laughs> flipping the bird. Such a great photograph. <laughs> um, but that was the time. And, you know, like I said, they, they, it became a totally 100% commercial country marketplace led by Garth Brooks and, and Shania Twain. God bless them both. Um, but to the detriment of artists of integrity from Roseanne Cash to, to, you know, Lyle to Dwight Yoakam for crying out loud. Simultaneously, you had that all country movement, you know, the Jayhawks, you, you know, you had Wilco, um, you know, before that Uncle Tupelo, you know, these great hipster bands that was creating a, a cool thing in the early 90s, but it was still hard to get a foothold with, with major labels. So the, the Americana Music Association, there's a bunch of people who were like, we got to do something. They got together, about 33 of them got together in Austin um, during South by Southwest in, 19, in the spring of 1999. And they said, you know, they set the parameters of what they wanted to do. They decided that Nashville being a music industry community and from which country, from which Americana was spawned by country, spawned by country music business rejection, effectively. So they got together again in, in uh, I think the first weekend of October in 1999, and they voted to form a union and it was called the Americana Music Association and they created a board and everybody reached into their wallet and you know they had an envelope and a silent contribution you could give as much as you want and they got enough money to, to kick off the association uh, they hired my colleague Dana Strong as the very first employee Dana of, was there from the beginning I don't think Dana, I knew that Dana was Dana volunteered for that meeting in October uh, to pour coffee and to, you know, just help out. She was just, you know, she was living in Nashville. She wanted to help out. Um, and, uh, and she did. And then it was like, well, Hey, you know, you like this music would, you know, so they, they initially did that. It was a board run event. They hired, they, they started a membership. They all chipped in. It was 100% working board. A year or so later, they hired, uh, J.D. May, who came before me 20 years ago. Um, and uh, uh, two years later, Allison Moore was on the board and she said, we need an award show. And it was her recommendation and her idea as she sat on the board trying to think of things to do that spawned the first award show in, uh, in 2001. So how did they define Americana then? Because we're going to get to what, how we define it now, but how were they defining it when they started the association? Well, I came in in 2007. And in my first board meeting, I said, we have a problem. <laughs> <laughs> my dad, the Christmas before I started, I, I went home and I asked my dad what he thought about uh, me taking this job. And at the time I was working for Mrs. Orbison, looking after the estate of Roy Orbison, his collection and the archives. And well, that had to be interesting. Yeah, it was, uh, it was great. We did an exhibit at the rock hall and we had a petition to get Roy a 
a postage stamp. And it was a great experience, a great run. And I was, you know, well paid. And these people approached me about taking this job. And I said, Pop, what do you think? And my dad said, well, is, uh, is the definition of Americana in the dictionary as a music form? <laughs> and we looked it up and, and uh, it wasn't there. And he sort of over his shoulder was like, I wouldn't take the job and went back out to garden. So I decided my dad didn't think it was the best idea. Therefore, I should probably take the job. Of course. <laughs> and uh, being the rebellious child that I was. So I'm there in my first board meeting. And the, the first thing I did a week before my first board meeting was I wrote Miriam Webster's dictionary and said, why isn't this word in the dictionary? And I clicked and they wrote me back amazingly and said, um, you please don't start a petition like we are Miriam Webster since 1848. We've been determining the vernacular of the American English language. And we look at this every day. Thank you go away. And so I clicked my Outlook button to remind me every three months to write Miriam Webster, which I did. Um, I went to the board and I was like, you know, what's, what's the deal here? And uh, they had the philosophy um, akin to the Supreme Court philosophy about a Larry Flynn issue and they said well we can't describe it but we know it when we see it and that was the prevailing theory of the Americana board at the time um, we don't know how to define it but we know it when we hear it so I worked on changing that which I think was beneficial um, and effectively over the years I convinced well Four years after I uh, wrote my first letter to Merriam-Webster's dictionary, the managing editor of Merriam-Webster calls the office and we had an, an intern come in and say, Jed, um, somebody from Merriam-Webster's is on the phone. We'd like to speak to you. And he said, I thought you should be the first to know that we are adding the term, musical term Americana nice. to our most prestigious collegiate dictionary. And their definition as of 2011 um, was that which is, it's an Amer American musical genre, which honors and derives from folk and country traditions, which is pretty much what I was telling them. <laughs> <laughs> and then, and I did write them every three months for four years before getting that phone call. Um, and then um, today, I think it has evolved. And, and my thoughts on what is Americana have evolved. And I try not to put sort of my own perspective on it. But the one thing that I do know is the Americana Music Association was started as a reaction to have been excluded from the business process. That was the music industry as we knew it in 1999. And today, I think my greatest goal is to remember what it was like to have been excluded. And my goal is to not be exclusive. My goal is to have a primary focus on being inclusive because 
I don't know what kind of album Emmylou Harris is going to make next time or Brandy Carlisle or Bonnie Raitt or Mavis Staples. Um, Mavis is an interesting example of one of the first people I was able to um, uh, be part of honoring. We honored Mavis in 2007 at the first award show I was part of. She didn't come. And it took many years, well, 12 years before I finally got Mavis to our award show in 2019 to properly present her with the award that we had initially given to her mm. in 2007. And I think in that time, slowly but surely, you know, we've, we've, we've been determined to acknowledge the input, creativity, and even some of the origins of what is Americana um, as it relates to people of color. Um, you know, I'm certainly of the mind that somewhere behind me here in Nashville, Tennessee, um, there was uh, there were many, many different cultures around the turn of the 19th century, um, 1880 to you know 1920, um, and even going further back a hundred years, who were you know French, French Canadian, Spanish, Portuguese. Um, um, you know, African-American slaves who brought the banjo from from Africa, who met, you know, the Scots and, and, and Irish and English who were migrating westward to go find oil, uh, rather gold, and, you know, were bringing their guitars and their fiddles. And, you know, that's where the banjo met the fiddle, right in my backyard somewhere. Um, so that being open to that, um, trying to have that be as organic as possible, um, which is how music changes, you know. What is Americana today is not what it was Americana in 2001. In 2001, 1999, it was Emmy, and it was Lyle Lovett, and it was Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Um, today, it's it still is Emmy, and it's Sturgill Simpson, and it's Yola, and it's Allison Russell, and it's Brandy, and it's Bonnie. It's Jackson Brown, uh, and it's Anderson East. It's William Bell. It's honoring the music that came before us. And like great artists do, they pull from history for inspiration and create something new for the future. I mean, do you think that Americana is a home for a lot of the independent artists? And there's the big what I would say, the big genres of just pop. Let's just call it all pop. And then you've got you the, maybe the big urban pop? music. Oh, <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but there's so much more music out there. And are you defining that? And, and are you giving a home to these artists? Well, I think the majors have been a little slow to see the, the longevity of these artists, like we were talking about before. I mean, I, I think Mary's right. I think the American Music Association is is part of giving artists a home to build a career. Mm -hmm. And they're not reliant as other industries are in this town, in Los Angeles, in New York, on that big hit or that big commercial or that big soundtrack. You know, they're 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 building fan bases town by town, city by city, 
show by show, stream by stream. You know, it's like it's, you know, air, radio airplay by, you know, radio airplay. I mean, spin by spin. I, I think Americana provides um, a philosophy of and work ethic, whether we like it or not, that um, is required. Um, you know, the business model that, that we are espousing is like, you're going to have to work hard. Like, this ain't going to come easy, but you can make a living and you can live your passion. And, you know, I could be asking, you know, paper or plastic, ma'am, as a job, or I could be sitting behind, a, 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 you know, a plexiglass teller window, you know, giving you your money and, 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 and keeping a job is an admirable trait. And, and you know, and, and lots of people need to have jobs to do various things. You know, when I was in my band, I worked in a restaurant to to butter my bread but my bread was playing was performing live and you know that's that's what i love to do um i think americana is it's it's a community that at this point is established and and it works in the long term you know you you can have a career in the music business if you follow your dreams and uh, I mean, they, they, the community doesn't like people who sell out so much, which can be a challenge for me because how do you determine selling out because someone's successful? <laughs> you, know? Um, you know, when I was in college and, you know, after the Clash's, you know, third album, I was kind of like, oh, you know, what are they doing now? You know, it's like, why should I discredit them because they achieved a modicum of success or the talking heads or you know anybody else from that generation it's like that i fight and and that i think lives in the americana you know the snarky uh purists uh that that uh that live in this world but i think they too can see that we are a, a home um for artists big and small i mean you've been to americana and you can you know you you, you can you know, walk into, you know, one of our clubs and see Lucinda Williams there to see another act that's playing at Americana Fest. Or, you know, I remember Grace Potter before she became an established artist coming in 2008 and, you know, walking up to T-Bone Burnett. And, you know, that happens. You know, getting in an elevator with Bonnie Raitt. I mean, that happens. Um, and that's inspiring, I think, for the next generation of of artists who um who commune in in this world um they, they they're you know i've worked with a lot of different artists and a lot of different genres particularly through my career at, at sony these are the nicest artists <laughs> that i've met across all genres. Nice. <laughs> no okay, so intended but no but they are they're incredibly nice artists and uh you know, they come in our studio and we tape them and they're nice, respectful, and they're drinking their tea and getting ready to play and, um, and so creative. And we talk about the fact that as a genre, there's so many great video, so much great video content. Um, we were shocked when we started Diddy that there was so much video content out there. It was almost like there was also a film world 
in the Americana world. Um, but what do you see, let's finish here, what do you see as the future of the association and Americana in general and or kind of like what are your goals for the organization and the genre? Well, like everyone, we, it's been quite a ride the last couple of years and we almost didn't make it. Um, we almost didn't make it in 2008 during the recession. Um, um, I, am, I am convinced that the survival of our organization um, at its roots was grassroots. And so I think it's really important as executive director of the association um, to always be mindful of that. You know, it's also my job to push to the future. It's, you know, my job to, you know, get sponsorships, but I'm not getting a sponsorship from Halliburton. I have to pick and choose based on what I know, the at least what I perceive the community I represent to believe in, which isn't always easy moving forward. We, we're, we've, we've been broke for 20 years, but we've always made it. Um, when we hit the pandemic, you may recall, you know, my first blush was this is going to be over in three months. 2020 festival is going to rock. We're going to, and by May of 2020, we realized that wasn't a possibility. And we had just started a foundation, a, a C3 charitable and educational organization as a, uh, as a, a side company, a separate entity unto its own, who would focus more on the education um, side of, of what is Americana. And we didn't quite know what was going to come from it. And um, so we decided to do Thriving Roots, which was our online title, the title of our online presentation for the fall of 2020 because we couldn't do Americana Fest and we didn't want to call it Americana Fest online because Americana Fest, as you well know, is about like hanging out right. as much as it, it is about listening to music, experiencing a live show. I mean, it's, it's all a great hang, Americana Fest. We couldn't do that. So we came up with Thriving Roots. Jackson Brown had agreed to be on our foundation board and what Jackson wanted to do was he wanted to, us to focus on the foundation and educational side on capturing the stories of people, friends, in fact, of his that were here before it was too late. Mm -hmm. And he, we were like, sure, who do you want to talk to? He said, Mavis. Uh, I want to interview Mavis. <laughs> it's like, oh, okay. We could put that in the Thriving Roots thing. And then... I called, I said, I called Roseanne Cash as manager. And I said, this is what we're looking to do. Is there something Roseanne would like to do? We're just putting it out there. Well, the next day she wants a Zoom call with me and Dana <laughs> and her manager, Danny, and we all get on the phone together. And she says, I want to do a, pa a virtual panel um, on the history of protest music. And I'm going to call my friends, Ry Cooter, Bonnie Raitt, um, and Angela Davis. It's like, oh, that's kind of huge. That, <laughs> there's our second panel for Thriving Roots. And what we did was we put 
out to the community, primarily to artists, as well as some of our business community. But we put it out. Emmylou Harris, will you talk with Ken Burns and Dayton Duncan about country one year later? You know, Ken's, you know, definitive documentary on country music to come out in 2019. Let's take a look at it at 2020 with the people who, you know, created it and, you know, our, you know, and an artist who was featured mightily in that documentary. We reached out to Judd Apatow, who had made a documentary on the Avets and said, hey, y'all want to get together and talk? Um, we reached out to the Lumineers and say, hey, is there something that you want to do? And they said, yeah, we want to talk to M. Night Shyamalan. What? <laughs> okay. So it really was inspiring as far as what we're looking at doing now. There is Americana Fest. That is our in-person family reunion. There is also the foundation. And we've partnered with, uh, with, Link, with uh, uh, NYU. And Roseanne was our first Americana artist in residence at NYU, which is like kind of cool. Um, and we did that program. We barely did it. We had to cancel parts of it because of COVID, but, but we, we did that. We're about to announce our next Americana Artist in Residence at NYU for this fall. Where we're going in the future to me is, and it, it, it is an expansive model. We, we've got our home. We've got our family reunion in Americana Fest. We're partnering with the biggest university in the nation. We, you know, in two weeks, as we do every year, we partner with Lincoln Center. We're doing a, a salute to Ray Charles with the Warren Treaty. So, you know, we're, we're, we're hitting some, some important cultural associations and, and partnerships that I think is our responsibility for the future of the Americana Music Association and foundation now. Um, and, um, it, you know, it, every year we seem to have a new project. I've never stayed in a job for 15 years before. Um, and here I am. I just, what, what's so, as a palette, as a working environment and, and a palette, every, it seems every year I'm gifted with a new color that I had never uh, seen or heard before. And it's, um, it, it's a great challenge and it's a great community and I just love adding to it. Well, I think you've done uh, an amazing job at uh, running the AMA and taking it to another level and really providing this incredible space for all these amazing artists um, that we all love. And I wish you the best. I can't wait to see you at AMA. I really appreciate you stopping by and talking to us a little bit about yourself and, and the AMA. All right, folks, we're wrapping up another hour of conversation here on Diddy TV. Big thanks to Jed Hilly for taking the time to connect with us and to share about his life and the passion that drives his work at the Americana Music Association. The force behind one of the greatest festivals and conferences around, Americana Fest, held every September in Nashville, Tennessee, and featuring an incredibly inspiring mix of up-and-coming and, and A-list talent. You can learn more about Jed and the Americana Music Association by visiting americanamusic.org From all of us at Diddy TV, thanks again for tuning in today, and we hope to see you again real soon, right here on Insights. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. 
FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points.